Who here is sitting next to a type A person? Who's sitting next to a type? Could you raise your hand? Just go ahead, loud and proud. That's it, really? Come on. Let's take a dose of honesty here for a moment. We live in Washington, D.C. We'll try this again. If you're sitting next to a type A personality, raise your hand. Wow, all of our type A's must have been the first service because almost every hand in this room should have gone up. So here's what I want to talk. I want to talk to the type A's for three minutes. I know you're on a time schedule. So I just want to speak to the type A personality just, just for three minutes. And here's my question. Does small talk irritate you? So like when you have an agenda, when you're trying to do something, whether it's at home or at work, like you've got to have, you've got to accomplish that. The small talk, does it, does it irritate you? I'm not talking when you're at a party, you've got nothing to accomplish. All right, forget that. You have an agenda to accomplish. Does small talk irritate you? There's a, there's, there's a weekly ritual that happens at my home with my wonderful, patient, forgiving wife, Krista, is we have to do the weekly um, calendar planning. And that might sound easy, but for us, sometimes it takes as much as one hour for her and I to sit down and to map everything out. I have a lot of meetings, she has a lot of meetings, and sometimes we have a lot of meetings together. The kids, oh my goodness, sports, school, and then we have to figure out us time, a lot of things. And so here's my thing. When I know we're going to have a particularly difficult session, I know when they're, I can feel them when they're coming on, like this is going to be a full hour one. Because I'm kind of type A, here's how I enter into those sessions. I'll just sit down with her kind of abruptly, and I'll just say one word. I'll say, I'll have my calendar and the pen. I'll say, go. Just go. That never goes over well. That, this doesn't work. She, you know, she's like, who are you telling to go? You know, I, that's just, it, but you would think I would do that once and would learn or twice or maybe ten times and would learn, don't do that. But I, it's so ingrained into me that type A, I got a thing, I go, you know. Uh, let me tell you what I love about Derek. Uh, I can walk up to Derek and I don't have to say to Derek, hey, how are you feeling today? Boy, that's a nice haircut you have. Or, I love the shirt you have on today. Now let's talk about what we have to do. Oh, I can just walk up and say, go! And it doesn't bother him one bit. It's like a breath of fresh air. It's like, a, this is awesome. This is, we can breathe. We're going to start in three weeks from today something called Radical Shift. It's based on the Gospel of Mark. God, Mark is a type A personality. So if you're a type A, this is the Mark is a dream come true for you. 41 times in the gospel Mark, this is his favorite word. He says, "Go." He's in a hurry. He doesn't he do, you know cut to the chase. You know where the word cut to the chase comes from? Anybody know that's got started cut to the chase? Anybody? Silent films. In silent films way back when you know, when some of us were kids, right? So way back when in silent films, they'd always have a chase scene and they'd do all this obligatory stuff in the beginning and then finally somebody said, let's just cut to the chase. Let's get to the good part. That's what Mark is about. So when you read Mark, all of a sudden Jesus bursts on the scene. He's not a baby. He's not Will Ferrell's baby with the little uh, golden fleece diapers, right? He's not eight pounds, six ounce baby. Jesus, all of a sudden, there he is. There's no wise man. There's no Mary and Joseph. You get bearded Jesus at the age of 30, bursting onto the scene. Boom! Here I am. You know why? Because Mark is like, you want to know who Jesus is? I'm going to tell you who Jesus is. He's a type A, high-strung personality. He's all about the go. So this is going to be a dream come true for you if you're a type A personality. We're going to study who Jesus is through the eyes of Mark. And there's fascinating things. I've read the book of Mark all my life. 
And I'm learning there's so many things in there that I did not know, did not understand. It's awesome. That's three weeks from today. I just wanted you to know about that. Now let's, let's get off of that subject for a moment, and let's just talk about how we can ruin our lives. All right? We're talking about Solomon today. Solomon teaches us wonderful things in the Scriptures, all kinds of incredible things. Those Proverbs, if you read a Proverbs, awesome about how we can make our lives better. But in a strange twist... He does teach us one lesson, and that is about how we can ruin our lives. So a little bit of background. Solomon, third king of Israel. You had King Saul, first king. David, his father, the greatest king of Israel. And then here comes along Solomon. Now, this guy was gifted. This is everybody's dream. He was very handsome, so he's good looking. We, we're not told that in Scripture, but we assume that. You know why we assume that? Because we're told that his father, David, was very handsome, and his mother was Bathsheba, and we all know the situation with that. If you've read the Scripture, if you haven't read it, she was extremely good looking. He was super rich. He wasn't just rich. He wasn't just rich. There's rich, and then there's super rich. He's of the category of the super rich. Every year, 25 tons of gold is what he received. That was only one one revenue stream for him, 25 tons of gold. He had many, multiple revenue streams, and one of them was 25 tons of gold. Back in his day, if you had horses, that was like having a car. He had 12,000 of them. So he had like 12,000 Rolls and Ferraris and all and on and, you know, Porsches in his garage. That's what he had. All right, MTV would have loved to do a crib show on this guy. <laughs> he had a palace to die for. It's absolutely awesome. He was a builder. He built all kinds of things. One of the greatest things he built, probably the greatest thing he built was the temple, the first temple in Jerusalem. It was awesome. So he was smart, right? He was an architect. We're told he was absolutely brilliant. All of these things. And maybe you've met somebody before and they're like really smart or not to say anything bad about engineers, but we're just, you know, engineer type, but it had a hard time with the feelings thing, like couldn't connect and just, you know, interpersonal thing. All right, well, this, this wasn't him. He was really brilliant, but he also was really in touch with his family. He wrote over 1,000 songs. He was like a deep, like a musician type. You know those musician types. So, so he was like that, and poems and proverbs. This guy had it all. I want to read for you. If you have your Bible, crack it open, First Kings chapter 10. I want to read you the story of the first nine verses of First Kings chapter 10. It's awesome about Solomon. It says, when the queen of Sheba heard about the fame of Solomon and his relation to the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. Arriving at Jerusalem with a great caravan with camels and carrying spices and large quantities of gold, precious stones, she came to Solomon and talked with him about all that was on her mind. Solomon answered all her questions. Nothing was too hard to explain to her. Think about that. This guy could explain everything. Nothing was too hard. When the queen of Sheba saw all the wisdom of Solomon and the palace he had built, the food on his table, the seating of his officials, the attending servants in their robes, his cupbearers and the burnt offerings he made at the temple, she, the queen of Sheba, was overwhelmed. She said to the king, the report I heard in my own country about your achievements and your wisdom is true, but I did not believe these things until I came and saw it with my own eyes. Indeed, not even half was told me in wisdom and in wealth. You have far exceeded the report I heard. How happy, check this out, I just like this. How happy your men must be. How happy your officials who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Like Anybody who's just around you should just have a big smile on their face because you're just so awesome. She's just like head over heels gushing over this guy. Praise be to the Lord your God who's delighted in you and placed you on the throne of Israel because the Lord's eternal love for Israel. He has made you king to maintain justice and righteousness. That's Solomon. This guy is absolutely awesome. Now, 
one chapter ahead, chapter 11, first nine verses. We get a little more insight into how things progress in his kingdom. So he becomes king. He's about 20 years old. He becomes king. He reigns for 40 years, dies when he's around 60 or so. So here we go, chapter 11. King Solomon, however, when you see the buts and you see the howevers, you know we got a problem here. However, he loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter. Pharaoh's daughter was like his first wife that he took. Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, Hittites, they were from nations, check this out, about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them. Why? Why, God? Because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Their, their faith and their values are totally different. It'll be different. You shouldn't intermarry with them because of that. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to love, to them in love. Verse 3, he had seven hundred wives of royal birth. That's a lot of calendar planning sessions right there. You know. And 300 concubines. And his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God. Check this out. As the heart of David his father had been. Interesting. Verse 5, he followed Ashtoreth the goddess of the Sidonians, and Moloch, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely as, for the second time, David his father had done. On a hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable god of Moab, and for Moloch, the detestable god of the Ammonites. He did the same for all his foreign wives. He built them little sanctuaries for their foreign who burned incense and offered sacrifices to their gods. The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. So, so think about this, right? You say, God, if you know, if I just had you know, the right spouse. Well, he's got 1,000 of the right spouses, right? If that spouse is wrong that day, just get rid of them and bring the other one in, right? If I just had the right spouse, if I just had the right house, if I just had, if I was just better looking, you know, if I was just better looking, if I, you know, had more money, um, God, if you would just show up, like if I, if you would just show up and appear to me, that would answer so many questions that I have. Right, everything that you could ever want, the whole menu of things, Solomon had them all. He had them all. How did that affect his life? Did that lead him towards living a, just a wonderful, wonderful life, or did that lead them towards misery? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, please help us today. This is an amazing story. It's so big, it's easy to look into it and learn lots of things. And I'm just asking, God, that you would speak to every single one of us in this room today personally. What is it that we need to hear from the story of Solomon and from your word specifically that will instruct us on how not to ruin our lives? In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. Um, why did Solomon disobey God? It was so clear from the scriptures. It was his father told him, don't intermarry. Deuteronomy told him. Why would he go and just simply disobey and marry all of these foreign wives who turns his heart from God? And we look at this from a distance and we say, oh man, that guy, he was dumb. He had it all going for him and he just threw it away. It was so simple. I mean, you know, there was all kinds of wives he could have taken right inside of Israel. Why did he have to go outside and do this? Well, I wanted to tell you this. Listen, think about this. It was for very good reasons. It was for great reasons. He wanted to ensure, even, you could even say it was for godly reasons. He wanted to ensure the safety of Israel. When he married, because it says they were all royal birth, 
He was marrying daughters of kings of other nations, which meant this, safety, security, economic success for him and for his country, for the people of Israel, for God's people. That was going to be better for them, right? So what I'm saying to you is this is for good reasons. This is for excellent, excellent reasons that he was doing it. How about you? You're facing something, maybe, today, tomorrow, next week, next year, and you're like, God, should I... Uh, should I listen to what the Bible says about this issue right here? Or, I mean, come on, God, this looks so good. If I just did this, I know it's kind of going against what your Bible says. I shouldn't do this thing, but come on. We all know that it's going to add something great to my life or my family's life or the world or something. It goes and cuts across your word, but come on, it's going to do something really good. There's the issue. There's the issue. And we could pick out a million things about this. Now, get a big job promotion, and what the big job promotion means, I've got to travel all the time. I'm not going to see my family hardly ever. But God, my family, I'm going to get a prestigious job, and my family's going to make a lot more money. I'm going to be able to send my kids to private school, or I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. And you know what, God? I'm going to give more money to the church. Give me the job. And then I'm away from my family. It never works out well. What is the definition of love in God's opinion? Love is patient, which means love takes what? Number one thing in God's dictionary definition of love, it takes time. So this never works out well. When we're away from each other, so we could go to God. We say, God, what do you think about me taking that job? Solomon, he could have gone to God. What what do you think about me marrying Pharaoh's daughter? Good idea? Bad idea? What do you you know? But he didn't. He knew that. So here's here's a bit of advice. One fill in the blank for you. Just write this down. How How do you ruin your life? You do this. You start with anything other than God and his word. Anything. You pick it. Your own good sense, somebody else's advice, somebody else's... Anything. Anything. This makes sense to me. It makes sense for me to marry Pharaoh's daughter. It's going to keep me and all of the kingdom safe. God, of course you want the kingdom safe. Right? God, of course you want me to take this job or you want me to do this or you want me to do that because, you know, ultimately it's going to bless your church. Or it's going to bless my family, or I'm going to get a spouse out of it. Of course, I'm doing. I know your word says not to do it, but you know, you know. Come on, the ends justify the means. It's all going to turn out well. And this is what Solomon's dealing with. This is why he compromises, because he says to himself, "My sense, my good sense, is of greater value than God's good sense." So we want to ruin our lives. We start with anything other than God in this word. Now, here's David. David on his deathbed. This is so cool. This is what he says to Solomon like right before he dies. First Kings chapter 2, he says, when the time drew near for David to die, he says, he gives a charge to Solomon. He says, his son, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. And he says this, so be strong and show yourself a man. What's he saying? He's saying, son, I'm going to tell you something. If you want to follow God's will and God's ways, you're going to have to be strong. You're going to have to man up. You, you can't be a wimp and do what you're going to need to do to live a life of meaning and of purpose and all of this and, you know, to, to, to not only be a blessing in your own life and your family's life, but for all Israel, you're going to have to man up and you're going to have to be strong because wimps can't do this. So he says, you're going to have to man up and observe what the Lord your God requires. Walk in his ways and keep his decrees and his commands and his laws and his requirements as written in the law of Moses. So that, why? So that you may prosper in all you do and wherever you go. You want things to go well with you? Then you're going to have to start with God and you're going to have to be strong. You're going to have to be a man and you're going to have to do the right thing. It's not going to be easy. 
So how did it go for Solomon when he chose his own way? Well, towards the end of his life, he writes in the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 1, he says these words. The guy who had it all, who decided that his sense made more sense than God's sense. He says, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What does man gain from all his labor at which he toils under the sun? He made decisions. You ever done that? Ever made the decision that you knew, like, the Bible wasn't in total agreement with or not in agreement with all, but it just made perfect sense to you? He said, this is going to work out well. I mean, this just makes sense. We're all smart people in this room. We know that. We've talked so much about this. Arlington County is the smartest county in, in, in America. So you're all the smartest people that we have in this country, right? You have a lot of sense. You have a lot of sense. You're smart. You can figure all this stuff out. And, you know, but have you ever done that? Have you ever said, hey, this, this, this is just the thing to do. This is the smart thing to do. And did, you know, did it turn out well if you went cut across what God's word has to say? Solomon should have gone to God first. Wife number one and said, God, is this the right move to make? Should I marry her? Should I do this? What does your word say about it? But he didn't do that. He chose his sense above God's sense. Colossians chapter one, this is, this, uh, I love this verse. For everything, absolutely everything above and below, visible and invisible, rank after rank after rank of angels, everything got started in God, in him, and finds its purpose in him. So where does everything start? Who, who should start everything? You know, it's like, it's like, you know, the little maze, you know, when you go to uh, a restaurant and maybe you get the little kid's menu or whatever. I still would to kids when they get the menu or used to. You know, they have the little maze on there and you can start one way and you try to draw the line to the right place. Well, here's the deal. Unless you start going down the right tunnel, that little right tunnel way, you can't get to the finish. And what you find is you've got to go all the way back to the beginning and start at the right place. You can't say, okay, God, I'm going to follow my good sense. And then halfway along it, you know, maybe I'll turn to you and turn to your word. You've got to back all the way up and start everything with God. This is what it's saying here. Start it with God because he's the starter of everything. And then it goes on to say, it's his purpose. Everything finds its purpose in God. Bertrand Russell, who was an atheist, philosopher, atheist guy, right? He says this. Unless you assume a God, the question of life's purpose is meaningless. That is so true. Because if God doesn't exist... Right? Years ago, there was a book that was written, and a guy, what he did is he wrote up 250 of famous scientists and philosophers. He said, just tell me what the meaning of life is. And you know what they basically wrote back? We have no idea. 250 basically wrote back. We have no idea what it is. Because if you say there is no God, where do you go? It's just utter, utter chaos. We have to assume a God because it all starts with God. If I start with me, I say, what, do I, what, what makes sense for me to do? What do I want to do with my life? I'm just saying, that's okay to ask that question, but it's not a good starting place. God, I just want to be comfortable. I just want to be successful. I just want to get this degree and this degree and this degree, and I want to get this position. I'm not saying there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with money and power and success. and all. There's nothing wrong with that. They're just bad starting places. This is simple. They're just bad starting places. A more appropriate, a wise, or a godly starting place, a biblical starting place is to go, God, hey, what do you think about X, Y, and Z before I ever start? 
I'm thinking about going on a date with this person. I'm thinking about marrying this person. I'm thinking about taking this job. I'm thinking about heading on this career track. What, what, you know, what do you have to say about that? What does your word have to say about that? And you start with God and you start with his word so that you don't head towards ruin in our lives. That's where we have to start. This is the wisdom of Solomon. Look at Romans 8, 6 says, obsession with self. And these matters is a dead end. What does that mean? It means when I just keep asking these I questions, what, does it work for me? Am I happy? Does it work for me? Maybe it works for you, but does it work for me? Those aren't good questions to ask as your starting point. A good question for me to ask is my starting What does God say about this? God, how do you fit? God, what works for you in my life? Better starting place. That leads to a purpose-filled life. Solomon wasn't doing that. There's nothing wrong with money, safety, happiness. All of these things are great. They're just bad starting places. This is what, uh, this is what Solomon would share with us. Now, I want to read you John chapter 1. This is a very important verse. The first three verses of John chapter 1. When you talk about purpose, you talk about meaning, you talk about making sense out of life, which is something we all want to know. John chapter 1 is a great place to start. This is what it says. In the beginning was the word. The Greek word for the word, word right there, is logos, L-O-G-O-S, all right? So in the beginning was the logos, and the logos was with God, and the logos was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made. The logos, you come to find out, is meaning Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is God. He created all things. Now, I need to explain what the word logos means. In Greek, in Greek, the word logos means something that makes sense of everything else. So in this case, since the logos, Jesus Christ, created everything, that Jesus Christ, the creator of everything, that only the creator can make sense of everything else. I'm going to tell a quick story to try to illustrate this point. Who remembers when it costs so much money to make long-distance calls? Is anybody here old enough that it would cost you a minor fortune? Like when you pick up the phone to call somebody on the other side of the country or on the other side of the planet, you did it with fear and trepidation. You would get a $5,000 phone bill. Is anybody old enough to remember those days? In January 1984, I was in Wiesbaden, Germany. I remember it distinctly. It was January 1984 because the Washington Redskins lost to the Raiders in the Super Bowl. They got absolutely drilled, and I have felt guilty ever since that day because I was not on American soil to support them, and therefore they lost. I've never told anybody that. I've told you today. It's my fault. I accept it, okay? I was there, and I remember it because I would call the person I was dating, who was Krista. I would call her from there, and it cost us a fortune. I put, I put the, I called Collect. I put it on Big Russ, Big Russ. I put it on his bill. I felt bad about that, but um, did it, it cost a ton of money. It was like hundreds of dollars. Like every second you were on the phone, you could just tick, 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 tick. It was just rolling. It was terrible. So, okay, you younger folks, you don't need Skype and Internet. Like, what? It costs pennies. I can talk to India all day long. It doesn't cost me a thing. Okay, it was a different world. So in the 70s, when Steve Jobs, who knows Steve Jobs? Okay, not personally, but you know who he is. Okay. When he was still a high school student, he created what he called a blue box. And he actually says that Apple computers would have never existed unless he created this blue box, which was an illegal device. It was illegal. So one of his first great productions was actually an illegal device. And so he created this thing so he could make long-distance phone calls for free. And so him and his buddy, who was an engineer, they create this thing, and his buddy does all the background work, and Jobs is like the salesman, and he learned how to make it user-friendly and all this stuff. So they, so they create this thing. They go onto a local college campus. They, they, they created them for 40 bucks, and they sold them for $150. He sold like 100 of them on college campuses. And one day they were a little bit strapped for money. They just needed to get some quick cash, and they were in a pizza parlor. 
And there was a table next to him. They just struck up a conversation with the guys next to him at the table and said, hey, we got this device and you can call, you know, all over the world for free. And they said, well, let's check it out. They go outside to a phone booth and they demonstrate it. says, look here. And they call it, I don't know, they called Buckingham Palace. They did something like that, they said in the story. It's a, it's a, it's a great story. And so the, they said, oh, this is, we'll buy it from you. We'll buy it from you. Come over to our car. We'll buy it. So they walk over to the car. The guy gets in the car, opens the door, gets under his seat, pulls out a gun, points it straight at Steve Jobs. He says, hand it over, buddy. Jobs is petrified. Oh, my gosh, this is crazy. He hands it, doesn't want to, hands it over. doesn't want to get killed. So he hands it over to him. But it was kind of a strange holdup because the guy says to him, after he gets the device from him, and I guess while he's holding the gun on him, he says, here's my phone number. If it works, I might pay you. Call me sometime. It was the 70s. People did crazy stuff like that. You, know I mean? you didn't do normal holdups back in the 70s. Like you exchanged phone numbers when you held people up. It was, just a, it was a different era, all right? So Jobs actually calls the guy a few days later. He, and he says, hey, you stole that device from me. Are you going to pay me? He, says, the th- he said, the thing is a piece of junk. It does not work. Here's the problem. Here's the problem. The guy was so worried about stealing the device and holding Jobs up that he didn't pay attention when Jobs was explaining the simple device. And so the device would not work. And what did the guy need to do to make the little miracle device work? He had to talk to the creator. Well, there you go. There you go. Since we're so smart and we're so bright and we have so many gifts and talents and we tend to be independent by nature, do we want to go to the creator first and foremost and say, what, what would you like to share with me about decisions that I'm going to make about my life? Little decisions, big decisions, all day long. It all starts with God. It all st- he is the creator. He makes sense. He's logos. He makes sense of absolutely everything. If I want to ruin my life, if I want to ruin my life, and I've done this before, I just start with myself or I start with anything else. But if I want to listen to Solomon and his great downfall, I say, you know what, God, I'm going to start with you. And I'm going to start with your word. I'm going to go to your word. Here's one of the things that we're going to do in three weeks when we do the Gospel of Mark. We're just going to trek through. What is, what is Jesus? No fluff. It's beautiful. Type A's. You're going to love it. Okay? Straight, hardcore Jesus. The real Jesus. What does he really say about stuff and take all the fluff away? You know, Mark actually doesn't even include any of Jesus' sermons. All he's interested in is what does Jesus do? Who is Jesus really? So I'm going to study that. So we start with God and we start with his word. Now I want to conclude with this. Some of you might say, okay, John, all right, got you. I've heard that before. I've thought about that before. I know I need to start with God. For some of you, it's your first time you ever heard that before. Oh, man, I just thought just, you know, like God and the Bible were like consultant to me. Like I consulted this person, this person. I consulted myself. And God was just in a long line of other consultants in my life. And that's not what God says. Solomon says that's not a way to successfulness. That's a way to misery and utter meaninglessness. So maybe some of you have never heard that. But for a lot of us maybe in this room we've heard, oh, yeah, right, yep, yep, start with God. Woohoo! going to start with God. That's where I'm going to start. Let me read you this verse. The very end of Ecclesiastes, the very end, Solomon says something fascinating to me. Ecclesiastes 12, 13. He says, here's the conclusion of the matter, all right? He's going to conclude the entire book, Ecclesiastes, for us. He's going to make sense of all of this utter meaninglessness. I've had all the cars, and I've had all the wives, and I've had the palaces, and power, and intel- I've had it all. Conclusion of the matter. You ready? Fear God and keep his commandments. What's he saying? Start with God and his word. Start with God and his word, for this is the whole duty of man. All right? Solomon knew that. Solomon ended in terrible tragedy. He ended miserable. 
He ruined, he absolutely, utterly ruined his life. He was miserable, depressed, despondent. He had everything. Why would he do it? If he knew the antidote to his problem, why, everybody, why didn't he take it? He knew what to do. It's not like, he's not like sitting there, I don't know what to do. What do I do? I'm miserable and I don't know what I do. He's miserable and he knows what to do and he doesn't do it. That fascinates me. Why wouldn't he take his own antidote that he had right here, the problem? And here's the reason why. Who's heard of Marvin Hagler? All right, Marvin Hagler, boxer. You guys got to get out more, man. Marvin Hagler was a great, back in the day when boxing, I know some of you don't like boxing, but, you know, I was a kid when I loved boxing. And uh, it was the glory days back in the 70s and 80s in boxing. Sugar Ray Leonard and Marvin Hagler and Tommy the Hitman Hearns, you know, these Muhammad Ali, these great guys. And Marvin Hagler was a great champion. And after he became a great champion, he had these fights, you know, with all the big fights. You know, it was like he was in his late 20s or something like that. He said something that was powerful, very helpful to, for us today. He said this, it's hard to get up at 5 a.m. and train when you're sleeping in silk pajamas. It's hard to get up at 5 a.m. and train when you're sleeping in silk pajamas. What does it have to do with us and Solomon? It has everything to do with us and Solomon. Everything. Solomon was comfortable. And the only reason he wouldn't take the pill that would make his life turn around from being so miserable to being so great and living a life of purpose is he was happy in his comfort and there was no way he was going to leave that comfort behind. He knew what to do. He just refused to do it. Now, contrast that with King David. King David ends his life, and the Bible tells us he lived a life of purpose. Actually, the book of Acts says David fulfilled his purpose on the planet Earth. He fulfilled it. Solomon didn't. He was miserable. No meaning to his life. But David did. But David ends his life in total discomfort. He makes this major mess up with Bathsheba, and the prophet Nathan comes and visits him. Now, if David wanted the comfortable way out, he's the king, everybody. He does anything he wants. He would have said, kill this guy, and he would have been wiped out. Absalom rises up against him. You think Absalom, when Absalom runs him out of Jerusalem, do you think that, I mean, David eventually, when he fights him, it's like taking candy from a baby. He just, he annihilates his army. It was nothing. But David, what he was doing, he was repenting. He was coming clean before God. He was saying, God, okay, I'm going to go through so much discomfort because my heart is really for you. I'm going to follow your will. Now contrast that back to Solomon. Solomon's like, no, no. I'm just going to have nothing but comfort in my life. You know, one of the amazing things, and I've seen this all my life, here's what happens. People come into church and they receive Christ as Savior. They get saved, right? Get their Jesus on and they're happy and they're excited. They start serving and working. And then they're around for 20 or 25 or 30 years. And then I hear people who've been around that long, who've kind of been around Jesus that long. Here's the most common words I hear. My time is done. Let somebody else do that. My time is done. Let somebody else do that. Let somebody else do that. That's what Solomon's saying. I'm comfortable. I've grown comfortable. Let somebody else do that. I read this story many years ago. It's about a young guy who's in his 20s, didn't have a job. And uh, he was absolutely miserable with life. Didn't have direction, didn't have a job, didn't, never been to church in his life. And he wanders into a church one day. And uh, 
he strikes up a conversation with the pastor and him and the pastor start getting together and they talk about the Bible and talk about the Word. And it comes to the point where this guy receives Christ as Savior and he says, hey, man, I just want to follow God. I want to follow his Word. Tell me what to do. And he's just start, they just start going through the Bible together and he starts following God and following his Word and following his commands. Well, eventually this guy gets a job. And when he gets the job, like a few weeks later, you know, he's talking to the pastor. You know, I got this job and I got this money. What would I do? And the pastor takes him to the book of Malachi where it talks about tithing. He says, you know what? You should honor God. God's word says you should. God says you, this is the only place God says you can actually test him in this. And if you don't, you're robbing God. Like if you don't give 10% of your income to God, you're robbing God. And God says, man, I'm all over it, baby. $5 a week I'm putting in the offering plate. And he's excited. He's fired up. And he's just rolling in life, you know. And he's living by the principles of God's word. He ends up getting married. ends up having a kid. God blesses him. He starts making $500 a week. He's stroking a check for 50 bucks a week to the church. God blesses him. He works hard. He's living by the principles of God's word. He starts making $5,000 a week. He starts stroking a check for 500 bucks a week to the church. I'm living for you. I'm living by your word. God blesses him, and he works hard. He starts making, he's rich. He makes $50,000 a week, $50,000 a week. When he started making $50,000 a week, you didn't see him around church that often. And he kind of got away. I mean, he's a smart guy. He's making 50 grand a week. You make 50 grand a week. You're smart, right? You should say yes at this point. Okay? So he's making a ton of money, and so he's just like, well, you know, I can figure things out on my own. So you don't see him around church. And about four, five, six years later, he stumbles back in church one day, and he's just despondent. He talks to the pastor after the service. He says, Pastor, you know I haven't seen me in a long time. He says, yeah, I know I haven't seen you in a long time. And he says, life has no purpose or meaning anymore. He says, I got a wife, I got kids, I got houses, I got vacation houses, I got everything, I got comfort, I got security, I got prestige in the community, I got it all. But you remember those days years ago when I walked in here and you were teaching me the word and I was living by the principles? I had a fire in me and the fire is gone. What do I do to get it back? I can't seem to pull myself to the place where I honor God and honor his word. I just can't do it. The pastor grabs his hand and says, let's pray. He says, Almighty God, make them make 50 bucks a week again. Oh, that's powerful. In my life, there are things that I know that it will take of me to honor God, to start with God, and to honor his word. The thing that holds me back is I am just too comfortable with my comfort. And the thing to think about here is this. Maybe you're at a place where you're trying to honor God and start with God and start with his word, and you just can't seem to be able to do it. Maybe you're at a place today where you say, God, if you need to make me uncomfortable, if you need to make me uncomfortable, then I'm giving you a green light to make me uncomfortable so that I could end my life like King David with purpose and meaning and not like King Solomon with a total disaster. You know what Solomon led them into? Civil war. When he died, the country split apart. It was destroyed. Army after army came in and completely destroyed. So all the things he did in his wisdom to provide for power and security and money and safety in his own good sense backfired. And the question basically is this, how do you want to die? How do you want to die? You want to die like King Solomon or you want to die like King David? You might be uncomfortable like King David, but you will have lived a life of purpose and eternal meaning.
You can't exchange that for anything. It'll be tough. It'll be tough. You'll have to be strong. You'll have to, like King David said, man up to do it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, so much, God, for the wisdom of your word. Lord, um, speak to each one of us today. Maybe we're here and we're like, yes, I want to live for your word and I'm doing it and we're following that and everything's going great. But maybe some of us are here like, oh, I want to. I just can't seem to be able to. And in that case, maybe some of us need just to look up to heaven and say, almighty God, I'm giving you the green light. Make me uncomfortable so I can honor you and honor your word that I might fulfill your purpose, a greater purpose than mine, a greater purpose than my comfort, a greater purpose than anything else. I want to honor you. Lord, help us to pray that prayer because that will take tremendous courage and strength this morning. Help us to do that in Christ's name. Amen. God bless you. We're gonna, the music team is going to sing a great song here for you in just a second. And the prayer team is over on the wall if you'd like somebody to pray with you. Thank you.